0: You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Well, it's been exactly one week since former President Donald Trump was indicted by special counsel Jack Smith on 37 counts related to mishandling incredibly sensitive classified documents. But it didn't have to be this way. According to the Washington Post, one of Trump's lawyers wanted to pursue a plea deal last fall. Joining me now, one of the reporters on that incredible story, Jackie Alemany, congressional investigations reporter for the Washington Post. Jackie, welcome back to First Look. Hey, Jonathan, good morning, thanks for having me. Okay. Which lawyer proposed this plea deal (laughs) and why didn't it go anywhere? Yeah, this is veteran Florida litigator
1: Chris Keiss, who proposed this deal to other Trump advisors who then floated it to the former president when he first was hired onto the team last year. It was uh, quickly shot down and shortly thereafter, uh, he was actually alienated and sort of pushed aside and sidelined from the Mar-a-Lago documents case and has since sort of been handling all of the other Criminal cases that Trump is facing, but we did get catch a glimpse of Keis this week, who actually accompanied Trump in Florida for his uh, arraignment, uh, which was a bit unexpected. But uh, Trump has had a bit of trouble finding Florida-based counsel to help him with the this next phase uh, of. The Mar-a-Lago documents case, as he's now facing 37 charges uh, against him for mishandling, concealing uh, and obstructing the Justice Department's efforts to recover these documents. Um, But it it really shouldn't come as, as much of a surprise that the former president turned down. Uh, the effort on behalf of, of Kais and maybe some of his other lawyers to try to take a more cooperative stance towards the Justice Department, um, as this this would be a bit unusual for for the, the posture, both publicly and privately, Trump has taken towards these myriad investigations.
0: Jackie, I just want to—so the lawyer is Chris Kais. Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't he the lawyer who asked to be paid up front before joining the legal team? Trump's legal team.
1: Yeah, you're you're a close reader, Jonathan, uh, and that is a move. Actually, that many of the lawyers who are now in the running to become Trump's counsel this time around have been making clear that they would need to to have as part of their agreement to come on and represent Trump. You know, after eight years and and really uh, almost fifty years in in total in terms of developing a track record for uh, stilting his, his lawyers and eschewing legal advice. He is a notoriously capricious and challenging client who is is known for, for stiffing some lawyers. I just spoke with one lawyer who said that he drew the red line a few years ago and vowed to never work for Trump or any sort of Trump-affiliated PAC, again, because Trump owed the firm that this person worked for, money. So this, uh, you know, asking for uh, a a legal retainer up front is uh, what my colleagues, Josh Dawsey and I, uh, and others who have been reporting throughout this saga have heard is now a a prerequisite for joining the team.
0: (laughs) All right, Jackie. So former Trump Attorney General Bill Barr said it is, a um, says that the indictment, the 49 page indictment is a very detailed, indictment of Trump and that, quote, even if half of it is true, he's toast. Is it as cut and dried as that legally?
1: Yeah, well, it was certainly startling to hear that from Trump's former attorney general, who has been a pretty staunch proponent of Trump, but has at times been been critical and tried to distance himself. But this was certainly his strongest remarks yet, you know, expressing um, criticism towards Trump and, and his actions. I'm not sure I, I quite agree with that assessment. This is a very long journey that we have ahead. There's uh, several months potentially until the trial actually starts. Jack Smith, the special counsel, has asked for a speedy trial for uh, the obvious reasons. But I think once a lot of this starts playing out in public view and we potentially start seeing a fuller array of discovery and new evidence that has been collected throughout the the course of smith's investigation public opinion could be changing and at the end of the day yes this is this is very much uh, you know a a cut and dry legal case if mm-hmm. you talk to uh, you know a, a broad swath of at lawyers on the ideological spectrum but you know for su- for charges like this, for for potentially charging the former president of the United States, a first in in American history, you you do need that aspect of some public support here. Uh, and, and indictments are always cherry picked, you know, no matter who it is. But there have been many people who have gone to prison for far less than what Donald Trump. in terms of the mishandling of classified documents. So we will be watching closely.
0: All right. In the less than five minutes left, I got to get you on two things. One, Ryan Goodman and Andrew Weissman have a piece in The Atlantic with the headline, Jack Smith's backup option. Donald Trump was indicted in Florida. Could he also face charges in New Jersey? And this created a lot of buzz when it dropped earlier this week. What does your reporting show? Is it a backup option, or a certainty, or wishful thinking, on their part? Do you th- do you know? Jonathan, our
1: team doesn't have any reporting to support this this piece by uh, Andrew Weissman and, and Ryan Goodman, who are obviously both excellent legal minds and and thinkers. It it could potentially be a possibility, but there was a lot of forethought that went into Smith's decision to ultimately charge the case in Southern Florida, a strategic decision, really. Of course, Mm -hmm. uh, it could be possible that maybe there is a separate indictment that could land in in New Jersey as uh, this issue of venue that we've been talking a lot about where the crimes were actually committed. Obviously, there is a Bedminster aspect to this, as the indictment noted, uh, these two examples of Trump brandishing and showing other people classified documents according to some of the evidence that Jack Smith obtained, that happened in Bedminster, New Jersey at his club. So it's not completely out of the realm, but it's not something that we're hearing at the moment.
0: Okay, and the next one is, uh, let's go to Georgia. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis uh, continues to send signals that she'll be making a move in her Georgia voter interference case soon. Is it all but a certainty that Donald Trump will be indicted in that case?
1: Nothing is is ever certain. Obviously there are a lot of signs, public signs that do indicate that. I mean, this was someone who was on recording, pressuring Secretary of State Brad Raffensburg to reverse his defeat in the state. So they also have a mountain of evidence uh, that is not exculpatory of the former president. But there are so many other considerations that go into this. Uh, But unlike Jack Smith, I think Fonnie Willis has played, has showed her cards a bit more publicly than Smith's January 6th investigation. So if if Trump were to be indicted in Atlanta, it wouldn't be as much of a surprise.
0: Mm-hmm. And and last question in the nanoseconds that we have left, we now know that a judge has set a January what is it January fifteenth, twenty twenty four date for the second Eugene Carroll defamation suit. There's a January 29th, ninth, twenty twenty four um, trial date for the um, New York Attorney General Letitia James, um, a federal. Uh, the, about the pyramids pyramid scheme, I think that's the Letitia james um, um no, this is a pyramid scheme about about his company. Letitia James loss trial comes up march twenty fifth twenty twenty four I put all those dates out there because I'm just wondering, could Donald Trump spend more time in courtrooms than on the campaign trail in twenty twenty four
1: yeah but those two things Jonathan I think for Trump and his team are going to ultimately be one and the same. Trump's team really views these appearances in court as as they described it this week a, a celebration of sorts, a, a chance for him to defend himself and display this sort of public abra- bravado and have a show of of support from his supporters. Although I will say he probably wasn't thrilled to see the crowd size uh, at the Miami courthouse mm on Tuesday, they were expecting 10 to 20,000 people. And you could tell by the overhead copter shots that that was certainly not the the um, the crowd size ultimately.
0: And you know what, Jackie, I, I agree with you. Whether he's in a courtroom or on the campaign trail, it will be one in the same uh, if passed as prologue. Jackie Alemini, congressional investigations reporter for the Washington Post. Thanks as always for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend.
1: Thanks so much, you too.
0: And we're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle and Jennifer Rubin. Megan, Jennifer, welcome back to First Look. Nice to be here.
2: Thanks for so, having me.
0: Sure thing. So, Jennifer, you had a column yesterday saying you believe it is now likely that Trump will also be indicted for his role in the January 6th insurrection. Quickly explain.
3: I think it's almost a certainty. Nothing is certain, but um, this is as close as you're going to get. There have been multiple convictions for a seditious conspiracy, um, the serious charge in which um, people responding to Trump's call uh, to go wild um, were handed down criminal sentences of a very long state. It would be manifestly unfair, frankly, for those people who answered the call to go to prison and for Trump to walk. Secondly, he has a mound of evidence, including now, we believe, testimony from the vice president and from Mark Meadows. Third of all, the prohibition, if you will, or the hesitancy about indicting a former president is now gone. He's been indicted twice, once by Jack Smith um, and once uh, by Alvin Bragg. And lastly, Fonnie Willis is going to file suit. Um, she's already blocked out the week in uh, August. And if there are enough facts for a phony uh, elector scheme under state law. There's certainly enough for a phony elector scheme under federal law that extends uh, beyond Georgia. So uh, I would be shocked, frankly, if we didn't get some kind of indictment on January 6th. The number of people to be indicted and the specific charges I think are still to be determined.
0: Okay, that's still to be determined. But Megan, let's talk about the indictment that came down a week ago today. You took to Twitter uh, to weigh in on the indictment saying, and I'm quote tweeting, and I'm quoting, even if he's obviously guilty, maybe the public will care less than I, I'd expect. Maybe he could eke it out in 2024, but the GOP could also just nominate someone else and not have to worry about any of that. So, Megan, what's the possibility the Republican Party base will just nominate someone else? at the moment it's not looking good
2: um you know i think that there is the a, a recurring problem with the republican base is this weird oppositional defiant disorder where they are doing things simply because the libs have told them not to which is not a good way to run your life and in fact like i'm actually sympathetic with a lot of their kind of epistemic questions about how authorities have used their power i think during the pandemic especially the way that the ways that public health was often politicized the ways that they got criticized for doing things that in retrospect look smart like opening schools that said you know the the kind of mentality of the republican base is i've i've often said it's kind of like saying you know my new fiance like hates my kids she steals my money and she does too many drugs and hits me but my ex-wife hates her right and that's not a good way to pick a president but that's the dynamic that we're stuck in
0: Jennifer, I see. (laughs) You have more Um, restraint than I do. (laughs) I love your reaction.
3: um, You know, I think um, there are two things going on. On one hand, um, as I have in my newsletter today, there's a very long list of Republicans who are now saying these are serious charges, they're not going to go away, and are even suggesting they wouldn't support Trump if he were convicted. Now, Let's not get too excited. That is, of course, a completely normal, bare minimum for a thinking person in a democracy. But nevertheless, these range from Mike Pence to Bill Barr to former Congressman Trey Gowdy. So there is definitely a segment of the establishment Republican uh, Party that desperately wants to get away with it. The problem is um, that they don't have the base, um, that the base, as Megan says, is still... Pathologically attached to Donald Trump. Now, as these trials progress, and as the number of trials progress, will they begin to get nervous that even if they love Trump, maybe the rest of America isn't ready to uh, elect a felon to the presidency? So, I think there is a possibility, and I also think that it's very possible we haven't seen the final, uh, the final field. Um, the current um, field is probably the best thing Donald Trump has going. It's pretty pretty shabby. Um, DeSantis has made a a really rotten uh, entry into the race and the others um, seem to be afraid of attacking him. But there are people who still haven't declared their intention out there. um, There's the governor of Georgia. There is uh, the governor of Virginia. Up until now, they said they aren't interested. But if come next year, um, this thing is going south. um, There is no... uh, really reason why they couldn't uh, step in. So I think we have a long ways to go. I think we're just the beginning of the process by which Republicans get a good hard look at what they're going to see. And I would say one thing, because of the need to educate the American people and the Republicans, I think it's essential to have at least some Trials concluded before the Republicans go to their convention. If he's going to be exonerated, exonerate him so Republicans can uh, nominate him with good conscience. If he's going to be convicted, they should know that, too. To allow this to drag on and to postpone and postpone with this hanging over not only his head, but the nation's head, I think would be a grave disservice.
0: Um, I'm going to resist the urge to ask about, but what about uh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, But who just jumped into the race? But we'll save that for, for another time. Let's talk about the debacle at Fox News. On Tuesday night, when both President Biden and, and Trump were speaking, Fox News put up a banner that read, wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. Now, spokesman for Fox told The Post that the banner was taken down immediately and the issue, quote, was addressed. Uh, There's reporting today that the person, a longtime Fox producer, and whose name I cannot remember (laughs) right now, but it's been reported, his name um, has been let go. Megan and Jennifer, but Megan, I'll start with you. Um, What do you make of what happened at Fox? And is letting that um, particular producer go, Alexander McCallan is is the name of the producer, is it Alexander McCaskill is, McCaskill, yes. is his name, um, is letting him go and saying that you know the issue has been addressed, is that enough for for Fox News to put it behind them?
2: I mean, I think so. And the reason I think so is that I think that you have to think of this in the larger context of the Tucker departure, right? Mm-hmm. Fox is in the process of attempting to clean house, of attempting to tamp down on the edgelording that got them into major lawsuit trouble. Um, you know, maybe maybe this is also a moral call. It doesn't matter. They don't want to get sued again. Um, and so, you know, this guy, Alexander McCaskill, was a producer with Tucker Carlson. And you can kind of, I, I think the way I interpret this is that he, he knew his days were numbered no matter what and has decided to go out in a blaze of glory um, hmm. with one final edgelord moment and i think that you may see somewhat more than this i expect that they will be putting procedures in place to make it harder for for other people to decide to to go out with one final troll um but i think that this is actually a symptom of they really are they really are cracking down they really are going to somewhat reform the problems that led them to the dominion lawsuit and to the other issues that followed january 6
0: and jennifer before you jump in there i mean listening to megan and and hearing what this guy did I mean, it seems as though before we were, we, especially when the text messages came out um, in that lawsuit where they were saying one thing on the air and believing something completely different off air, this situation, does that mean that they actually believe this stuff? it's very
3: difficult to figure out what they believe and what they don't. Um, What we do know is they're afraid of their audience, that they fear, and that was the whole mindset behind um, the lies um, regarding the election, um, that they fear that if they fess up and start telling the truth that their audience will flee. And so they have gotten themselves trapped into this never ending cycle of, you know, sort of Pravda-like reporting um, on uh, the Republicans and kind of making up stuff as they go along long and these kind of outrageous claims. And I think they um, have a problem. If they reform too much, as Megan says, they're going to lose their audience. If they don't, um, they're going to wind up in litigation again. And I think it's going to be a process of figuring out what they want to be when they grow up. Um, Listen, there's another network that's trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up, and that's CNN. So right now, I think it's a time of turmoil for cable television news. Uh, Ratings are declining. Um, People's viewing Habits are changing from TV to online to podcasts and the rest. So I think uh, we're going to have to wait and see how this turns out. But I do find it remarkable that someone could have lasted this long with these types of views and this type of behavior. It speaks to the culture that Fox has created, which is not of a news organization, but which is a political pack and kind of attack propaganda machine. Um, It's a telling sign of um, what at least the old Fox has been, whether that's going to be the new Fox or not, we don't know.
0: Um let's turn our attention to well actually we've got a little bit of extra time Jennifer I want to just real quickly before we turn to Russia and Ukraine um the the Atlantic piece by uh, Roy Goodman Ryan Goodman and Andrew Weissman with the headline Jack Smith's backup option Donald Trump was indicted in Florida could he also face charges in New Jersey you're an attorney would and I hope you you at least know about about this piece but what do you make of that? Of of their theory? I've actually
3: speculated along the same lines, and there are two facts that um, are somewhat concerning, or or at least questionable, raise questions. Nowhere in this um, indictment is there any charge for dissemination, and we know that two acts of dissemination—that is, sharing highly, highly classified information—allegedly took place at Bedminster with two different groups of people. So that hasn't been charged. And in fact, there's really no mention in the indictment at all about incidents in Bedminster. And that may be because they don't have the evidence. That may be because the documents there were so classified, they really can't use them in a trial and therefore they're kind of skipping it. But it's also possible that um, in their back pocket, they think, well, if the Florida uh, litigation slows to a crawl because Eileen Cannon is a loose cannon, as they put it, and is uh, inclined to help Donald Trump. They can always kind of speed things along and file another suit in Bedminster. But remember, there are other lawsuits still to come. There's going to be a criminal indictment in Georgia. There's going to be a criminal indictment in Washington, D.C. So we really are going to have to keep a Excel spreadsheet to kind of figure out what's going on where.
0: Well, yeah, that that yeah. Um, Megan, let's, let's turn in the time we have left to Russia and Ukraine. Um, it's in, entering a critical phase. Um, Ukraine's launching its counter-offensive. Um, I want to play what the U.S. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Mark Milley, uh, how he described it Thursday at a NATO meeting in Brussels. Listen.
3: We have said before that war is dynamic. It is a contest of wills. As the Secretary just said, it's uncertain. It's violent. And as always high cost, but we can be sure that Ukrainian bravery, competency and preparedness
2: will carry the day.
0: And so Megan, since the war began, the United States has directed more than $75 billion in assistance to Ukraine, including military, financial and humanitarian support. But I'm wondering, will the Republican House uh, majority pump the brakes on the pace of that support? Might they tie support to Ukrainian gains on the battlefield?
2: I think there there is a big constituency for pumping the brakes. I, and again, this I think this goes back to the kind of oppositional defiant disorder. Um, look, I think there are, in fact, real questions about, you know, can Ukraine win this war? Is what we're doing wise? But that's not really what's motivating the Republicans here. What's re- motivating the Republicans here is that Joe Biden likes Ukraine and, and liberals like Ukraine, therefore they don't. Right, and it is all tried it goes back to the Trump Russia stuff in twenty sixteen and Burisma and, and all the rest of it. That this thing has gotten bizarrely politicized, and Republicans have often lost sight of the the kind of core fact that like the Russians are the bad guys. And in any definition that the the Republicans would have used before twenty sixteen, they would have called the Russians the bad guys. This is not one of those like questionable. Oh, gosh, this is hard. There's a lot of sides here. No, they just invaded Ukraine. They are not, you know, even if you want to take the best Russian line about the Donbas and th- there's Russian speakers there who want to be part of Russia, they're now invading the part that does not want to be part of Russia. This is sheer nationalistic expansion. We tend to be against the people who just randomly invade other countries. Um, and and yet that's where the Republican Party is. It is all tied up with Trump. And I think that the, the interesting question for me is how the indictments are going to shift this, because I think one thing just about sort of Putin's conduct of the war and also about the way the Republicans were thinking about it is. He, Putin has to hold out for another year, Trump gets elected, and then the aid stops and Ukraine collapses. I think that's simplistic for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that we're not the only players here. Europe is obviously also giving a lot of aid to, to Ukraine. Um, but I think that the as the odds that Trump will get elected decline, and I think that you have to think that with the quality of the indictment we just got, that the odds of Trump getting elected, despite biden's low approval ratings and all the rest of it and despite my general suspicion that procedural crimes are kind of hard to get people on if you think about clinton like he indisputably did a bunch of bad stuff and it just didn't matter um that, that this is actually going to make it very hard for him to get it re-elected, which i think has to change republican calculations as well as as putin's calculations about what works um politically uh as well as militarily in ukraine
0: I, I Jennifer, um, your thoughts.
3: Well, uh, just to clarify, of course, violation of the espionage is not a procedural crime. Those would be obstruction and lying to the government and so on. But I do agree that the Republicans um, are now um, so tied to this kind of nationalistic, right-wing dictatorship mindset um, that what we see as war crimes, what the world sees as war crimes, um, they somehow become infatuated with, um, and they have begun to identify with Putin, and Putin Begun to identify with them. His last list of people, you recall, who are banned from the Soviet Union, from the from Russia, Ooh, can't vacation, in, <laughs> can't uh, you know, Russia anymore. Are Trump's political domestic opponents, um, lawyers, and so on, who have opposed him. So there is this bizarre synergy. There's this bizarre alliance between the two of them. But I would say this: um, what we saw in the debt ceiling fight is that there are fifty or so. Republicans who are really kind of in the MAGA out to lunch crowd. That is not a position, particularly on Ukraine, that is held by Senate Republicans in particular, but also, frankly, a majority of the Senate House members. So I think it's a question of whether um, Kevin McCarthy can, first of all, stay in his position. And second of all, keep something on the floor, because if there is, I think there is a House majority as well as a Senate majority to keep funding Ukraine. And I think um Republicans are seen as sabotaging Ukraine at the moment they are beginning their offensive. And I would commend the uh, contributing piece by Ben Hodges, lieutenant uh, general, former lieutenant general of uh, NATO in Europe, um, that we're just beginning the uh, counteroffensive. If they are seen as the ones who are thwarting um, Ukraine's uh, defense, that is a really, really big problem for the party. And I just cannot help but um, marvel at you know the complete role reversal. It wasn't, um, but a couple decades ago that the Democrats were weak on dictatorships, weak on national security, always making excuses for the bad guy, and now the roles, of course, are completely reversed.
0: Well, th- who knew that the Russia Ukraine part of this conversation would be the most fascinating for me, especially Megan taking it from Russia Ukraine to saying tying it to Trump's domestic. Um, legal issues was thoroughly fascinating. Um, Jennifer Rubin, Megan McArdle, as always, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.